February of 2014, the Russia-supporting, Russian-backed Ukrainian president, Viktor Yanukovych, was ousted from office by a popular uprising that stemmed from a series of protests, usually called the Euromaidan protests, that were sparked when Yanukovych decided in November of the previous year to suddenly segue away from an agreement between Ukraine and the EU that would have brought these two entities into closer economic accord with each other. Russia was keen to bring Ukraine more closely into its orbit. It leaned on Yanukovych to pull Ukraine hard toward Moscow instead of Brussels. And when he did, that led to months of protests that forced him to flee to Russia, and things kind of spiraled from there as Russia didn't like losing its man at the top of the government, so it shifted tactics, opting to nudge pro-Russia groups in the eastern and southern portions of Ukraine toward rebellion. These groups, mostly in the eastern Donbass region, were reinforced by troops and weaponry from unmarked Russian soldiers who crossed the border in a somewhat deniable way. The Kremlin saying, hey, look, it's not us. They are not wearing our flags. We are not doing this. Maybe these soldiers are just very patriotic and doing this in their free time. And we don't even know where they got all those heavy weapons they're bringing with them. It's very mysterious. And that allowed Russia to help these groups capture a huge chunk of Ukraine from Crimea upward, leading to the formation of two self-proclaimed republics that continued to fight a low-level war with the central Ukrainian government from April 2014 until early 2022, when, after about a year of military buildup at their borders with Ukraine, and eventually in neighboring Belarus as well, on their border with Ukraine, Russia invaded, following months of saying that they would not, sending waves of troops and tanks and jets and missiles and the whole nine yards into the country from multiple directions. Apparently, based on a scheduled announcement from the Russian government that seems to have accidentally gone out in the following days, intending to quickly strike, decapitate the Ukrainian government, and replace it with someone that Russia controlled, making it a puppet state once more. That did not go as planned. Ukraine massively outperformed expectations, those of Russia and those of the rest of the world, which initially looked on in horror and wagged its collective finger at Russia for doing something bad, but then eventually committed to supporting Ukraine in its ongoing stand against its far larger, far wealthier neighbor. This invasion began in February of 2022, and as I record this, we are about a year and a quarter into what was meant to be a quick blitzkrieg-like assault, but which has instead become a grinding, incredibly deadly and destructive and costly war for both sides. What I'd like to talk about today are some new happenings in this conflict and what might happen next based on these new and still evolving elements. listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The big-picture narrative of Russia's invasion of Ukraine remains essentially the same as it was the last time I did an episode about it on the one-year anniversary of the conflict several months ago. 
Russian President Putin claims he was right to invade, switching between rationales based on the needs of the moment and the audience he's speaking to, sometimes claiming it was NATO and the United States' fault for encroaching on his territory with their alliances, sometimes claiming it was an effort to clear out ill-defined Nazis that had taken over Ukraine, and sometimes, this one a lot more recently, he claims this conflict is a struggle for survival, as Ukraine is trying to kill off Russia, apparently, serving as a proxy for the West, which intends to topple the government, kill all the Russian people, destroy their history, etc., etc. Those excuses are almost universally without merit. There is some small basis for the argument that NATO has gotten pretty close to Russia over the years, and that maybe at some point they had agreed not to do that, but there's just as much factual information against that justification, as things have changed since those older handshake agreements were made, and Russia has taken a lot of aggressive steps in the meantime, invading Ukraine in everything but name beginning in 2014, for instance. And all of those other excuses are laughably baseless, at least according to all the evidence that's ever been presented at this point in time. The details of this conflict, though, have changed fairly substantially since late February, the one-year anniversary of this invasion, and in several important, potentially conflict-defining ways. First, the Ukrainian city of Bakhmut, which initially came under assault by Russian forces in May of 2022, with a more earnest surge of effort to take the city on Russia's part in August of that same year, has become a defining hotspot of the war, serving as a bit of a strategic touchpoint that would maybe be somewhat meaningful for whomever managed to claim it because of its adjacency to other things, but which has mostly become a symbolic trophy that, though basically demolished and lacking in much of anything resource-wise, would allow one side or the other to put out a press release about their amazing long-term victory over the monstrous enemies they were able to finally defeat. The city became a military and journalistic focus of the war as Russia's much-lauded, but ultimately not terribly effective, late 2022 offensive fizzled, leaving Russian forces with a little bit more territory than they had before, but also with a lot of static front lines to defend. The area of Bakhmut remained an active offensive push zone, though, as the Russian military and then Wagner Mercenary Forces, which is a group that is more or less controlled by the Russian government, but run by a private Russian citizen, not by the country's internal formal military apparatus, they threw a lot of soldiers and artillery into the fight, focusing their forward-moving efforts there to the exclusion of essentially every other front that they'd established. The Ukrainian military managed to hold on from then until mid-May of this year, apparently intending to hold up those forces and prevent them from being recommitted anywhere else, and to grind them down, taking out as much hardware and killing as many enemy Russian soldiers as possible. Some optimistic numbers from Ukraine's military suggest that for every soldier they lost, Russia lost 10, while another outside estimate places it at closer to five Russian soldiers for every Ukrainian soldier killed. Either way, it would seem that, although Russian forces now formally claim to control all of Bakhmut, a claim the Ukrainian side contends, by the way, though without providing much in the way of evidence for that claim, so it's a pretty fair bet that the city is essentially Russia's now. It was a costly victory, 
and might be a fleeting one, as there's word that better-trained Wagner forces might be pulling out to attack elsewhere now that they've achieved that press-release-worthy, mission-accomplished moment, leaving only badly-trained and poorly-equipped Russian conventional military forces to defend it, which could allow Ukraine to roll back through, retaking the city within weeks or months, depending on when their long-awaited new offensive, backed by all sorts of new weapons and better-trained troops, begins. That long-awaited offensive is the second big new variable here, and it's been interesting to see folks within the Ukrainian military and government, and their allies elsewhere, play it up and tone it down in equal measure, almost certainly wanting to keep folks paying attention and optimistic, but also wanting to manage expectations just in case things don't go perfectly and they don't manage another bizarrely successful advance like the one they orchestrated in late 2022, which allowed them to recapture quite a lot of earlier lost territory and which embarrassed the Russian forces quite a bit as well. The new counteroffensive will supposedly include an array of new weaponry that's been provided to the Ukrainian military by their Western benefactors, including longer-range missile batteries, a slew of new armored troop carriers, and a surprising number of high-end tanks. Surprising because the gifting of such tanks was in question for a long while before one country after another decided, yeah, okay, let's train them on these things and see what they can do with a few dozen of them to start. There's also word, as of just a few days before I'm recording this, that some of those same nations will be providing Ukrainian forces with advanced fighter jets, including the US-made F-16, which means any nation with such jets can help train Ukrainians in their use and then donate the ones they have on hand to the Ukrainian military. And a lot of European nations in particular have F-16s in their arsenal and are in the position to give them away, as they will soon be replaced by more recent, more advanced, if a bit issue-prone, so far, F-35s. Those jets are not likely to be ready for use, for training and bureaucratic reasons, till later this year, at the earliest. But those tanks and new missiles and other gear are likely to be used in this new offensive, and ostensibly at least, the deployment of a sufficient number of these new tanks and other hardware is part of why we have not seen the offensive launch yet, at least as of the day I'm recording this. And that could change before this episode goes live, because it could really happen at any time now. That said, there's also a sense that there's a lot working against the Ukrainians in this new counteroffensive, including environmental issues like mud, internal issues like governmental disorganization, and external issues like foot dragging on the part of those nations that are supposedly sending them all this fancy new hardware. This could be an accurate sense of things, this sense that there's a lot working against them, or it could be misinformation meant to lull Russia into a false sense of security before they are hit hard by something very well-supported and very well-organized. It could also be a bit of both. Either way, the Ukrainian forces seem keen not to waste this opportunity, as a big failure after all this build-up could be devastating to the level of support they are provided by all these external entities. It has been expensive keeping them geared up and facing off against this much larger foe, and many governments would like nothing more than to have an excuse to stop sending so much money and materiel into the meat grinder that this part of Eastern Europe has become. There is a non-zero chance that some component of this new offensive has already begun, actually, as a lot of relatively quiet reports from different places along the front lines have indicated movement. 
but we likely won't know for certain that things have kicked off until some big success has already been achieved, as that would allow Ukrainian forces to play off anything less than success as not being a part of this impending offensive. Don't worry about those little failures, basically, because the big real offensive is still on the way. So the apparent next step in this conflict, now that Russia has seemingly taken Bakhmut and possibly partially exhausted its forward momentum in that region for the moment, is an expected attack aimed at retaking more territory by Ukraine, and they reportedly have a bunch of new equipment to help them do so. Another, third angle to the evolving narrative of this conflict is happening outside of Europe, as Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky travels around the world meeting with foreign leaders, including a recent highly reported upon visit to the G7 or Group of Seven summit meeting, where he was able to make his case to the leaders of seven of the world's wealthiest and most powerful nations, alongside the leaders of India and Brazil, two countries that have taken to playing both sides in the conflict, benefiting as Western nations and Russia both try to win their support in this fight. This global tour is representative of Zelensky's larger glad-handing efforts, which are a significant component of why Ukraine has so many monetary and military resources flowing into the country. But it also represents, in microcosm, a larger realignment of relationships, trade and defense-related in particular, that we are seeing globally right now. I did a bonus episode on this concept recently, and the basic outline of this narrative is that Russia is generally falling into China's sphere of influence, not really having much choice in the matter, and left without too many other allies, except for global outcast nations like Syria, Iran, and North Korea. A dozen or so other nations have been participants in this mini-alliance as well, generally not because they're big fans of China or Russia or any of the other members, but because it's short-term profitable to do so, and because, in some cases, they resent the place the U.S. and European nations have in the world, and how they sometimes abuse their power. And these outsider nations would like to establish a new power structure that allows them to behave differently. And in some cases, that means more global power for authoritarian governments. In some cases, it means less pushback on their desire to continually invest in fossil fuels or to perpetrate human rights abuses, things that are becoming less popular and accepted as the global West continues to hold the reins on how things work in the world on average, controlling who is rewarded or punished for which sorts of behaviors. In the short term, this could be just a mini-alliance of convenience, but in the longer term, it could help China fulfill its ambition of building a global economic apparatus capable of challenging the USD-dominated systems that hold everything together today, and which, consequently, gives the US outsized influence on all things global and economic. Right now, though, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is serving as the pivot point around which these larger machinations are orbiting, so some of what's being said and done is likely more related to governments pushing against the current dominant system or supporting that system, and less about what they think of Russia having invaded its neighbor, even if their posture manifests tangibly as seeming support for one side or the other in this specific conflict. Right now, Ukraine's government maintains that it intends to kick Russia out of all the Ukrainian territory it holds, including the territory it took through those proxy states that rebelled with Russia's support back in 2014. 
which would be quite the undertaking, and there's some doubt that they would have the capacity to do so unless the Russian government topples or something else fundamental changes about how Russia sees and decides to treat these territories. Many analysts at the moment think that the Ukrainian government is keen to launch a successful counteroffensive sometime soon, which should help them get momentum back on their side and take back some more territory. And once it has Russia on the back foot again, it will attempt to open negotiations, putting them in a better position for those discussions, which might be at least partially hosted and supported and organized by China which is likely keen to end this thing sooner rather than later, and which is gestured at wanting to present itself as a peacemaking entity throughout this conflict. It may be, though, that both sides intend the same thing, never wanting to have those talks unless they are in a clearly advantageous position at that moment. And Ukraine has made clear that they are unlikely to back down or even talk about ceasefires until all Russian forces leave their territory including the land taken in 2014, first. So this war may be stuck in an active, live-fire stalemate position until something significant changes at a higher level. book I'd like to recommend today is called Wireless Wars, China's Dangerous Domination of 5G and How We Are Fighting Back by Jonathan Nelson. This is a useful book for understanding a bit more about that grand realignment that I talked about in this episode, particularly the way that China and other entities in the world are trying to dominate the supply chains, the production chains, but also the standards being set for different modes of communication, different ways of building things. If you can control the standards, you can control to a certain degree the way the next 10 or 20 years look, especially if it's for a fundamental technology, like, for instance, wireless technologies. This book has a very clear bias. We are the West, according to the narration of this book, but as long as you're aware of that bias, you can step into it and still get a whole lot of very valuable, useful information. It's well-researched, there's a lot to it, it makes the stakes of this type of competition very clear, and it puts it into good context. Just do be aware that it is coming from the perspective of somebody who is very pro-West and fairly substantially anti-China. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Wireless Wars by Jonathan Nelson. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other news-focused podcast, One Sentence News, wherever you get your pods or at onesentencenews.com. And please feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and Colin Wright on YouTube and Facebook and so on. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.